our time here has been refreshing, truly. We, we truly appreciate all the warmth and uh, hospitality. And we also especially want to thank everyone who got involved in uh, uh, helping us to celebrate the first birthday of our grandson. Uh, it is uh, really touching to us that um, this church has embraced our children and eventually our grandchild. And uh, they call him the, the grandson of the town. You know, so uh, we're grateful for that. And uh, again, I thank Pastor also for the opportunity to, he has given me to uh, uh, open the Word of God to you this evening. And uh, we just want to ask you to continue to pray for us. I did bring some of our, some of our prayer cards there on the table back there. So if you have not received one of ours before, please take one. And remember to pray for those three things that I showed you on the presentation. Um, the expansion of our buildings, or more facilities at least, um, that Bible Institute, so that God might call some of those men to pastor churches in Paraguay eventually, and then um, a vehicle that my wife and I can use so that uh, we can also bring more people to the work of God in Paraguay. Um, this evening, I don't uh, plan to stay too long. I know that you do have things planned. So let's get right into the Word of God this evening. Let's go to the book of uh, Mark, one of the ladies. In fact, it was uh, Danielle who just sang, then said to me that she likes when I preach because she likes my jokes. I said, man, that's not good. I don't want to be known as the joker. So I'll try to be serious. Just kidding. Mark chapter 8 in your Bibles. I'd like for you to uh, look with me from verse 22. I'd like to talk about the second touch tonight. Uh, here's, an, here's a very interesting story in the book of Mark in chapter 8. And in verse 22, the Bible says, uh, And he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. And he, sent him a, and, and he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell it to any in the town. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this evening. And once again, Lord, we are so honored and are grateful for the privilege of being in your service. Lord, we recognize that we are simple men, men of sinful natures. But thank you for your forgiveness. And thank you for putting us into the ministry. Lord, I ask that tonight you, you would honor yourself by your word and that your spirit would guide the way. I pray you speak to hearts. I pray that if there's anyone here tonight who is living with a lot of doubts and confusion, that you would touch them, 
that they might see clearly. Lord, I pray for your power that it may rest upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, it's all right to say amen when the Word of God is being preached. You know, just don't overdo it and just don't say it at the wrong, at the wrong places. I said it because we were in uh, Dallas not long ago and uh, we were at a youth camp and there was a young man sitting next to me. I, I don't know if he had some uh, uh, disability of some sort, but while the preacher was preaching about uh, a somber theme on suicide, this guy kept saying amen. The preacher said, by the way, he says, the devil is a liar. And he says, amen. And then uh, the preacher said, and the devil whispers in the ears of all the young ladies in our churches that they are ugly. And he goes, amen. Uh, it was louder. <laughs> and then uh, the preacher said, and by the way, he is the one that encourages young people to commit suicide. And his amen got louder. I said, that's not the right time to say amen right there. But when you are impressed by God to say amen, it means you are in, you are in agreement with the Word of God. Amen. So don't be shy. We, we are an independent Baptist church, so it's okay to say amen. On the other hand, I've been in churches where they shout amen to where you could not hear the preacher anymore. So it doesn't resemble a sanctuary. It resembles a football field. So I am not in agreement with that either. Anyways, we find here in this passage tonight a very interesting story. We find that the Bible says the Lord comes to Bethsaida. It's one of the northern cities in the Galilean region, uh, just north of the Sea of Galilee. And I, as he was walking by, we find that the Bible says they bring a blind man unto him and besought him to touch him. One of the interesting things that I see in this story is that he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit in, on his eyes and put his hand upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. Now, the first thing we consider here is that the place Bethsaida is part of the, like I said, region around the Sea of Galilee where Christ spent most of his earthly ministry. Uh, in fact, a lot of his miracles were performed in that region. And it appears that his Galilean ministry was drawing to a close. And he is about to exit that region. And yet, as he was beginning to, to close his ministry in that area, they bring a blind man to him. Now, why do you think, you, you might say, why, why is it that God is closing the doors of ministry to that region? You'll have to go to the book of Matthew in chapter 11 to find out. Because in Matthew chapter 11, we find that uh, the Lord actually pronounces a curse upon this city. And so in Matthew 11, the Bible says in verse 20 to 22, Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. You see, one of the main problems that the nation of Israel has ever had when it comes to its relationship with God is the problem of unbelief. In fact, you read the book of Hebrews, and Pastor has been going through that on Wednesday nights, and the, the main 
stumbling block that prevented the nation of Israel from achieving, if you like, rest, spiritually speaking, uh, from entering into the promised land, many of them was the problem of unbelief, faithlessness. This morning we were challenged through the life of Elisha to expect great things from God as we deposit our faith in Him. And we find here that the Bible says God began to upbraid these cities because of their unbelief. And as we continue reading in verse 21, Woe unto thee, he says, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. Now, having that in mind, going back to our text, we are then left with the question, why did he bring the blind man out of the city? It seems to me that the reason is because God already had closed the door to that city. And God already had said, I'm never going to perform one more time any miracle in that city because of its unbelief. And to that may I say this, that God can and does close the doors on nations, on cities, on villages when it comes to his work, spiritually speaking, in those places. And may I say this, that as far as I can see, our societies, I'm talking about the Western world, we are coming to the point now of no return when it comes to the wickedness and unbelief to where God is saying, you know what, I'm not going to give any more national revival to any of these places. On the other hand, we see, however, that while God may close the door to a nation or to a city, He still takes time for the, for the individual. As it is with the nation of Israel, the Bible says that He has put the nation of Israel to, this, to a side, to, to, to a shelf kind of thing, when it reject, rejected the Son of God, the Messiah. He came unto His own, and His own received Him not, but as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. So while we might not be able to expect a national revival in Canada anymore, God can still save individuals through the work of the local church. And so I'm thankful that there's a church here that cares about souls. So we see that the reason I believe God took this blind man out of the city is because he would not perform a miracle in that city. Another thing we see here is that the Bible says he took the blind man, he spit on his eyes. Now, don't ask me the reason why he did that, because the answer is, I don't know. You see, God works in mysterious ways, and sometimes I don't, I don't understand. In other places, and we'll look at those places later on, he healed other blind men. He didn't, he didn't spit in their eyes. In John chapter 9, he healed another blind man. He didn't spit in his eyes, but he spat on the ground, formed a little bit of clay, and placed it on the, the eyes uh, or the eyelids of that blind man, and he sent him to the pool of Siloam and says, um, wash yourself there and you will see. So in two occasions, he used spit, which reminds me of uh, Dr. Gisalva, but 
never mind, it's a lame joke. Anyways, um, he talks about the freedom of spit. <laughs> Apparently there's um, a chief, a tribal chief that was in a boat with a lot of other people and he's used to chewing this, um, this leaf, I don't know what we call it, nganga or something. And he would spit every now and then. And of course, the breeze would blow the spit to the people at the back, and they began to reprimand him. He says, I believe in a free country, and there's freedom of spit. So, <coughs> that's my bow on Brother Jojo. Anyways. <coughs> the interesting thing is, as we look at this passage, he spat in his eyes, he touched him, he opened his eyes, and he could see partially, not clearly. So we consider the place, we consider the miracle, and it seems like this, must, this might be the first time and the only time that Jesus Christ failed at an attempt in a miracle. So we ask the question, does God ever fail? And of course, the resounding, resounding answer is no. God never fails. Whatever he does, he's always right. And even when you and I don't understand what he's doing, we know he's always right. God never makes mistakes. As the song says, when you cannot see his hand, when you cannot, I could not remember the words, but when you don't know what he's doing, just trust his heart. He cares, and whatever he does for you is for your benefit, for your good, and it's for his glory. So why it seems in this case then, well, why does it seem that in this case he failed? We find that after he asked him what he saw, he said, I see men as trees walking. He placed his hands upon him again, upon his eyes again. And this time, as he opened his eyes a second time, he saw very clearly. By the way, I believe that all of the miracles of Jesus Christ in the New Testament are object lessons that teach us his work of salvation. They show us the, the utter hopelessness and helplessness of the individual. And the only way they can get out of that situation is by the miracle of God. The greatest miracle that God has ever performed in my life is saving my soul when I was seven years old. Now, any other miracle that God has performed since then in my life will fade into insignificance compared to the fact that there was a, a hell-bound soul, now heaven-bound. To me, that is the greatest miracle of all. If God does not, will not do anything else in my life ever, I will thank Him forever that when my life on earth is done, I will stand with Him on eternal shores in eternity. And I will not spend not even a fraction of a second in a place called hell. I thank God for that. And so we see here that this also is a picture of salvation. Now wait a minute, you might say, when God saves an individual, he doesn't do it in degrees or in a process. Salvation is an instant event the moment a person places faith in Christ. 
So therefore, we need to figure out why then did this person not receive a full sight or a full restoration when the Lord touched him. Let us compare his experience to other blind people that God has healed. By the way, may I say to you that blindness is something I never, never will understand, but I know that a lot of blind people would like to see. They would give anything to be able to see the colors of the flowers, and the birds, and the sky, and the sea. In fact, uh, I was here in the fall last year, and as, as I was driving down to one of the greatest stores in the world, as far as I'm concerned, it's called uh, Home Depot. I drove down a certain avenue, and it was lined with trees, which leaves were changing colors, and I just had to stop and just praise God for an amazing display of nature. I said, God, you painted that. That's beautiful. Well, that was the first time I've been, I've been in a place where I've observed the fall. You see, I, I grew up in the Philippines. Trees don't change colors over there. In Australia, neither. And in Paraguay, not a chance. But here, it's amazing. That's because I can see. I've seen videos of people on the internet who have been colorblind for a long time and for the first time were given a special pair of, of eyeglasses which allows them to see color for the first time and you can see just the, the emotion that comes flooding into their soul as they begin to see colors. I have a friend who is colorblind and so I asked him, how do you drive then? You know, you come to a set of lights. How do you know it's red or green or yellow? He says, well, I observe. If all the cars are stopped, it must be red, so I stop. <laughs> what happens if there's no one there? I'll just go, you know? <laughs> oh, by the way, he's not in Canada, so you're okay. You're safe. But in Paraguay, it doesn't really matter anyways because sometimes all the, all the lights turn on at the same time. So take your pick. A German tourist once visited Paraguay and it was about four o'clock in the morning. So he got on a taxi and the taxi brought him to his hotel and they come to a set of lights, it was red. So the driver did not stop, but coasted through the lights and kept going. And Germans, of course, are stickler, are sticklers to rules. So he said, why did you not stop? Did you not see it was red? And the driver said, did you not see there was nobody there? <laughs> and that's like the Philippines too, by the way. In Matthew chapter 9, in verse 27, the Bible says, uh, and when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, thou son of David, have mercy on us. We see here that these blind men recognized Jesus for who he was. The son of David, the line of Judah, the Messiah, the son of God. And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus saith unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this? They said unto him, Yea, Lord. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to, the, to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. 
they, when they deported, they were deported, spread abroad his fame in all that country. You know what? You could not stop a blind man who just a few seconds ago could not see anything. But now as his eyes are open and he can see everything in 1080 high definition, full color, you could not stop him from spreading the news that this Jesus opened my eyes. But what I see here is somewhat different to the other blind man we were looking at earlier. Because when Jesus came, these people heard that he is coming through. And the Bible says, out of their own accord, out of their own volition and heart, they cried out to Jesus saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And he says, do you believe that I can do this for you? By the way, in verse 29, there's a phrase here that is being used, and it's one of the favorites by the prosperity gospel churches. According to your faith, be it unto you. Oh, by the way, I don't see there anything about cars or houses or money. Because sometimes people would take a little phrase from the Bible and use it out of, out of context, saying, if you have faith, God will give it to you. One of the problems we have in Paraguay these days is that there's a number of emerging churches who are geared towards the prosperity gospel message. And they tell their people to bring a key to the church and believe that God could turn that key into a house. I wish it were true. I would donate 10 keys to my son-in-law <laughs> so he could have 10 houses. But you see, this is not a blank check for you to use to apply to any and every situation. There was a specific need here. God was addressing, and he asked this, this blind man, do you believe that I can do this for you? And they said, yes, Lord, we believe. We believe that you have the power to heal our blindness. Whether you will do it or not is up to you, but we believe. See, that is true faith, one in the character of God and in the power of God. You see, we could never demand anything from God. Some people say or think that when you pray, and you pray with a lot of fervency, that God is bound to respond to your prayer more than when you pray with a soft voice. I was invited once to a, an office in the Parliament House in Paraguay to uh, pray with a certain chaplain. And I thought he was the actual chaplain. When I got there, I was disappointed. He was a pawn under the control of two women who are supposed to be the chaplains. I don't, know how to, I, I don't know how you say a chaplain in the feminine gender, but they are the ones who actually ran the show. And sure enough, they were prosperity gospel preacher women, and they prayed. Boy, when they prayed, you could just imagine the floor of that office shaking and thundering with the thundering, thunderous prayers that they offered. And I thought to myself, do you think you're impressing God? Why are you trying to impress me? You see, we could not impress God with our performance. And it's not about claiming promises like this out of context. It is rather believing who God truly is. And sometimes we might have to settle like the apostle settled for the answer that God gives. Even though we find that Paul had enough faith to move mountains, when it came to God to ask for healing, and we heard this this morning, the Lord said to him, no, I'm not, I'm not going to heal you. 
I'll give you grace. On the other hand, we need to realize that these blind men were so desperate for help, they knew there was nobody else who could help them, so they turned to the Lord Jesus Christ for help, and sure enough, he agreed to help them. But the key to them being helped is the extent of their faith. Do you believe I can do this for you? And they said, we believe. And God says, according to your faith, it will be done. Chapter 20, the book of Matthew, another situation where God heals blind people. In fact, uh, this same incident was recorded by Mark, and he names one of the blind people here as being Bartimaeus. In Matthew chapter 20, in verse 29, we see here, And as they departed from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the wayside, when they heard that Jesus passed by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. And once again here, there's a recognition of who Christ is. By ascribing him to be the son of David, by recognizing him as the Messiah, they're simply saying, you are the all-powerful, omnipotent one. And the multitude rebuked them because they should hold their peace. But they cried the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. You see, these blind men were crying out to the Lord Jesus Christ, and the crowd says, This is not appropriate. You are not supposed to shout, Be quiet. This is church. Don't smile. Don't laugh. This is church. Well, that's not the setting anyway. They were in the open. What I'm saying, however, is that as people began to pressure them to be quiet, they realized that this might be the only chance, the only opportunity to get help from God. And so nobody and nothing can stop them from approaching the throne of grace saying, Lord, Son of David, please help us. You see, what I see here is an intense desire to be helped by God and nobody can stop them. Now, going back to our text, we see a different attitude from the blind men in our story. We see that as the Lord was approaching the city of Bethsaida, the Bible says in verse 22, where we were in Mark chapter 8, and they bring a blind man unto him, and they besought him. It wasn't him. It was they, whoever they were. Friends, relative, relatives, I don't know who they were, but we find that the Bible says they were the ones who besought Christ that he would touch the blind man. Now, like I said, I believe that this miracle portrays to us his work in salvation. And this is where we will spiritualize this story. Because I believe that God honors the prayers of the people around us on our behalf. But he will only carry out the work in our lives according to their prayers to a certain point. Then it's up to us from our own hearts to call out to him if we truly want his help. I believe that there are some young people here today 
who are here because you, you have parents who are praying for you. You have a church that cares for you. You have a pastor that cares for you. A youth pastor that cares for you. Maybe there are people here, you're here because your wife cares for you. I remember the story of a husband who was involved in all the activities of the church simply because the wife is so eager that he would get saved and so she would sign him up for every event. He's there all the time and the wife is hoping he would get saved. And one day, one of the deacons of the church said, Bro, friend, why don't, why don't you just get saved anyways? You're here all the time anyways. Might as well get saved. And the man says, oh yeah, I'm saved. Really? Why? When? How? And so he, he explained to him how he got saved. And he says, so how come you have not told anybody? He says, well, my wife has signed me up for everything, thinking I'm unsaved. Can you imagine what she would sign me up for when she finds out that I am saved? <laughs> Maybe you're here today because your husband cares for you and encourages you. Please come, come, come. And God does honor the prayers of the parents, of a partner, of a pastor. But ultimately, it's up to you to develop a relationship with God and call to Him out of your own heart. I'll explain to you later on why I believe that there's a second touch that's necessary sometimes. But as a father, I often pray for my children I remember, remember one time while cutting the grass and uh, mowing the lawn is one of my favorite moments. It's one of those moments where if my phone rings and I don't answer it, I have the excuse, I did not hear it. You know. But it's a moment where I think about things and I pray sometimes. And I remember one time I was riding a, a lawnmower and I was cutting the grass back in Sydney and tears began to flow down my cheeks, and I, I was praying for my children. I said, Lord, I could not touch their lives the way you can. I could not call my children into the ministry, even if I wish my sons would follow in my footsteps. I could not make them surrender to the ministry, but my prayer is that somehow you could captivate their hearts so they could, they could love you twice as much as I do. And they would surrender their lives much more than I've ever done so in my life. And that is my only prayer for my children. But at the, at the end of the day, as they reach their age of adulthood, it's up to them to cultivate a relationship with God. Now we find here that this particular blind man was brought to Jesus. It wasn't necessarily his idea. We don't see it in the passage. Perhaps he went along because he heard about this Jesus. Perhaps they said to him, he can heal blind people. Why did you try? You know, I was telling Pastor Tim, Tim that I was taught to play the guitar by a blind man. And it's a clever man. Today he's a pastor of a church in Pangasinan, in the Philippines. So how does he preach? Well, he opens his mouth and talks it. He's blind, he's not mute. Anyway, so, so how does he read his Bible? It's Braille, he's got a Braille Bible except he says it's not King James. So his wife reads the King James Version to him when he's studying the Bible, so he could compare, and he would take the authority of the King James Bible and preach that way. But uh, when I was younger, 
I would help him out. I would lead him to the store. And then one day, after having been engaged with my wife, I introduced my future bride to him. He shook my wife's hand, and I says, "Sure, when you've chosen well, your bride, your your fiance is beautiful." I looked at him and I said, "Are you sure you're blind? <laughs> Are you fooling me?" Oh, you see, blindness, like I said, is a situation where people would like to get out of, and he himself wanted, if it was possible, to have surgery, to have surgery. Surgery. Perhaps the only person I know who is blind, or I know of who is blind, who did not want to be restored as far as, uh, as her sight is concerned was Fanny Crosby. They asked her that when the technology was available to do eye transplants, would she want to have her eye replaced and her vision restored? And she says, no, because I want so that when I open my eyes for the first time and see for the first time, I want to see my Savior first of all. That's a hymn that she wrote, My Savior First of All. Now, I don't know what this blind man was thinking. I don't know if she, he was content about being blind. But I know that those other blind people, when they realized that Jesus Christ was passing through, out of the depths of their hearts, they cried to him and said, Lord, please help us. He didn't. So I am led to believe that the reason why Christ did not restore his sight completely is for him to have a little bit of a taste of what God can do so that in the process he would say, you know what, I think I want him to continue the work. I now believe. Now, it seems like this whole process took just a few, few seconds, maybe a couple minutes. You see, Christ comes, leads him out of the city, spits on his eyes, you know, I'm talking about from the time he touches his eyes for the first time to where he touches his eyes for the second time. I don't think more than two minutes would have passed. But as we spiritualize the situation now, sometimes, spiritually speaking, from the time God begins to open your understanding to where God touches you for the final time and completely restores your vision spiritually or opens your understanding completely, it might take a long process. I'll explain that by this. And perhaps there are some young people here who, who can relate to this testimony. I still remember the day that my mom opened her Bible. In fact, uh, it was the Ilocano Bible in John 3.16. I was seven years old. The day prior, I believe God heard me talking with my friends, playing with my friends, and I began to use the language that they were using. And, and she asked me about it later on if I understood what I was doing, if she, I knew that that was wrong and that was against God. I said, yes. And immediately I sensed this uh, sense of guilt. I knew I was sinning. And so the following night, I still remember as if it was yesterday in that small cottage we had as a house, we had two bedrooms. You know, most bungalows in the Philippines have two bedrooms on one side and you have your, all your living uh, spaces on the other side. And in the front bedroom, she had a, a box where she kept her uh, um, linens, her, her blankets and pillows. And on top of that box, there was a small lamp 
We had no electricity in my town when I was growing up. Power didn't come until I was 15 years old, which means there was no TV, no internet, no cell phones. We didn't even know what the telephone was back then. That was like heaven. Life was beautiful. And the young people are saying, no, that's suicide. Anyways, she opened the Bible and explained to me John 3, 16. And somehow I felt this relief in my soul to realize, you know what? I'm glad that there's a way out of this guilt. I'm glad there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And that night I bowed to trust Christ as my Savior. But if I were to tell you that from that time forward, life was hunky-dory, I would be lying to you because my life was full of struggles from that time forward. As I was growing up, getting to my teenage years, I began to have all these uh, emotions and thoughts and, I guess, hormones began to kind of play up in my mind and I began to doubt every little thing that I believed in. I would go to church, but only going through the motions. I didn't really enjoy church. In fact, I live on an island where one of our favorite um, activities was to go fishing. Of course, you're on an island. What else do you do? And I would rather go out fishing on a Sunday morning than be in church, but I had to be there because I was the pastor's son. And I struggled. And finally, one night on the other, in the other bedroom, I had a one-night confrontation, an all-night confrontation with God, where I said, Lord, I don't know what's happening in my life, but I'm struggling. I don't enjoy what others are enjoying. I don't seem to, you know, when somebody gets saved and everybody says, Amen, I go, home, oh, whatever. What's happening? I said, I, I, don't want, I don't like this. And, and so I, I prayed and I prayed and I said, Lord, if I wasn't saved when I was seven years old, if that wasn't real back then, maybe tonight it can be real. Maybe tonight you can touch me, touch me another time that I might see clearly instead of seeing things as if men are walking like trees. And that was a time when I, I sensed the Spirit of God just clarifying everything, reminding me, hey, that night you bowed your head to trust Jesus Christ. I saved you. But I needed that second touch of God upon my life to clarify everything. And from that time forward, never once did I doubt my salvation ever again. In fact, at the end of that year, God called me to preach. But it wasn't until such time I could clarify this whole doubt in my mind before God that God could use me in His ministry. So perhaps there are some young people who are like that here today who you could not recall much your salvation experience because you professed when you were little. And you've been going through the motions and struggling could it be that tonight maybe God could touch you another time and end all the confusion and doubt and give you a clearer vision into the future? We can even apply this to prayer. Maybe you've been praying for something, but you're not truly convinced that God could do something about the thing that you're praying about. And pray, people are praying for you, 
But could it be that God is now saying, you know what, I've answered the prayers of people around you. What do you really want me to do for you? So to give it three simple applications, I believe this. In this particular story, I believe that God did respond to the faith of this young blind man when he went from having a factual knowledge of God to an experiential knowledge of God. And so if, I believe that if God is to do something special in your, in your life, you need to move from just the factual to the experiential. What I mean is, a lot of us know about God, the God of the Bible. But my question is, is He real in your personal life? You see, I don't want to just read about the miracles of God. I just don't want to see the wonderful things that God has done in the lives of other missionaries and other pastors and other churches. I want to see His work in my own personal life. And I want to move from the factual to the experiential. I want to move from the general to the particular. You see, I believe God is a God of miracles. I believe that God can do things that He has done in the past, and I believe that God is all-powerful. But is there a particular need in your life that God could respond to so that He could nourish your faith and give you under the understanding that He is not just the God of your fathers, but He is also your God? Perhaps this is the moment where I would challenge everybody, especially the young people, because I am concerned that there's a whole new generation of young people in our churches today who perhaps might be going away from the faith of their fathers because the faith of their fathers got never, was never transferred to theirs to become their own personal faith. Remember that uh, song that says, Give me that old-time religion? It was good, good for my father. It was good for my mother. It's good enough for me. You know what, young people, it should never be that way. When the faith of your father, or if that religion is not good for your father anymore, or your mother anymore, it should still be good for you because it is the Word of God. Because God is still God. Because He is still the same all-powerful God that, he said, that has challenged you or is calling upon you to call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. We need to go from the popular to the personal. Could it be that this young person was just going through the motions because his friends said it's cool to go to Jesus and ask for something? And it's popular. Could it be that he was going through the motions because there's move movement? You know, I, it, is, it was exciting to see church this morning, was it not? The church was packed. And we visited a couple of churches like that also in the last few weeks where there's a lot of movement, there's a lot of progress. And it's easy when you're in a place like that to go through the flow, go with the flow, jump on the bandwagon. On the other hand, we also visited a couple of churches where nothing much is happening, humanly speaking. Maybe just a handful of people in the church, not even a dozen. It is in those moments where one simply has to dig in and analyze what am I doing here? Who am I really serving? Because it is easy, like I said, to jump on the bandwagon when everything is happening, but when nothing else is happening, would you continue to, to cultivate your relationship and your walk with God? Move from the popular to the personal. I believe that that's what happened to this young man here. When God touched him the first time, he realized, you know what, I could trust this Jesus. He could really do something about this.
situation. I need to trust him completely. Everybody has come, needs to come to the point in your life where the God of this Bible is not just the God of your pastor or your parents or your friends. He also is your God. I said a long time ago, it doesn't matter what happens to this world. You see, my dad isn't perfect. He's a pastor. There are men that I have looked up to over the years. By the way, as I was growing up, my heroes were preachers. I didn't have a basketball legend in my, on, on my wall. My brother had uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger on his wall. I didn't. I always enjoyed the time when preachers would come to my house to visit. They were my heroes, but there are heroes of the faith that have let me down. Over the recent six years, at least five men that I respect are out of the ministry because of sin. It hurts me. But I'm not going to change my convictions just because they failed. Because God has never failed me. So, simple point of this message tonight is this. If your life or your heart or your mind is struggling with a lot of doubts, maybe you need God to touch you one more time. Just to clarify things in your life. Maybe you just need to come to Him and say, Lord, you know what? I don't want to live with these struggles anymore. I want to live in victory. Can you touch me one more time? Can you touch me one more time?